Do you want to do the intro or do you want me to? I really forgot how long that was. <laughs> Garrett, you do the intro. What? Hi, <laughs> welcome to Sweet Tea and D and D. I am Garrett. Bravo. <laughs> That's it. If you don't know who the fuck or what we do right now, then you're caught up. There you go. The rest of it is a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> What's this podcast about? Who Corn. knows? We don't Doesn't know. Matter. So uh, we're going to talk about some monsters today. Uh, I guess I'll kick it off since I did last time we tried to record this and it was lost to the interwebs and Zoom because we ain't paying for that shit. I'm talking <laughs> about the Alep. It is a the first monster actually listed in the Mordekainen's Tome of Foes. It can be found on page 116. Uh, it looks like haunted toilet paper that turned black and wispy. Um, it's kind of like the shadow creature, but more... I would say stronger and angrier, uh, and full of dark, dark wisdom. Well, so, if it got um, too bad in the COVID-19, would you resort to using it as toilet paper? If it was actually corporeal, which I believe it is, mm, well, it says incorporeal movement. I'd probably use a few if I was desperate. <laughs> if I didn't find that last pack at Family Dollar right before this shit happened, I would be like, hey, Alec, you can whisper in my ear, but I gotta have a few scripts. <laughs> Good God. So to describe what it looks like, it's humanoid. It's, it looks like a human, but in a bathrobe that's very wispy. It has a face and head and everything, so it, it still has a mouth, I guess, to whisper with. But it's got, um, I want to say it still has all of its hands, and, or all of its hands and fingers, yeah. So it's got pretty much its same bodily structure as whatever it was before. And to get into that, this thing is... Essentially, a creature created from a curse. So whenever some type of researcher or anybody finds a hidden truth of the cosmic order or a demon lord's true name or something that shouldn't be related or open to the public, uh, their body and mind are racked with pain and psychic damage and all sorts of horrible things, and it turns them and breaks their psychic. So if a secret is revealed to somebody... Uh, the Alep acquires the secret, but the curse annihilates its body and leaves behind a spectral creature composed of fragments from the victim's psyche and overwhelming psychic agony. So I'd say, I don't, I don't know how successful you are at wiping. You might have just better luck with your hand. Um, <laughs> uh, so they have, uh, blasphemous secrets. Uh, every Alep is racked with a horrifying insight that torments what remains of its mind. So after it's been tortured, it has to run the earth being tortured more by its crazy, crazy thoughts. In the presence of other creatures, an Alep seeks to relieve this burden by sharing its secret to libraries, quiet spaces, anywhere it can slowly start to tell its secret to this person that they're trying to pass it on to, only to be relieved of their curse. Once they have shared the secret in its entirety, not just part of it, the Alep can pass on to the um, next point of its tortured, tortured, soulful life. Um, it does have issues when it does this, though. So let's say you're a researcher in a library and you've been reading and every now and then your brain is rocked with pain and misery as you try to write, I don't know, your dissertation. And then uh, <laughs> as you're finished and coming out of that daze after like a week, then all that's left is just a blank slate of guilt and regret. And then you're like, hey, I'm finished with that. And you never have to look at it again. Uh, and once you've done that, essentially the person who's taken the secret and written it down is okay, as long as they don't read the contents of it. And so as long as the secret remains in the text, it's fine. The Alec can pass on. If not, once they read it and have recovered the secret themselves, 
then they are converted to an Aleph, and they must pass the secret on again, and hopefully not share it, because that's the only way to get through. Do they stay an Aleph? They will stay an Aleph. There's once you're once you've recovered the information, whatever that secret is, you are no longer human. You're just a being of psychic agony. Ooh. Yeah. So um, they are undead in nature. They don't require air, food, drink, or sleep. Um, one thing they do uh, do is they, whenever you're kind of in combat with one of these, if you come across one of them, they will uh, kind of whisper things to you. So this is something kind of like, are you trying to find some information? Maybe as a D- DM, you're trying to get some lore passed along, and the only person who knows it is an Alec. In order to do it, they have to either defeat this Alec to get the information or essentially be psychologically tortured for a while while they ride it out. And those who encounter them also kind of go through this weird um, temporary madness that messes with the recipient of whatever whispered secrets it's passed on. Um, they are medium undead, neutral evil creatures. They have an armor class of 13, uh, hit points of 40, or a total of 9d8. Uh, they have a speed of zero feet because they ain't got no legs, but they can fly at 40 feet and they hover. Um, they have a strength of minus two because they can't touch shit. Uh, they have a score of six, a dexterity of plus three with a score of 17, a con of t- zero with a score of 10, uh, intelligence of plus three with a score of 17, a wisdom of plus two with a score of 15, and lastly, charisma of plus three with a 16 score. They have saving throws of plus six and plus five to intelligence and wisdom. They have a plus five to perception and a plus six to stealth. They are resistant, being undead, to acid fire, lightning, thunder, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. Uh, they are immune to cold, necrotic, and poisoning, because they're dead. Uh, they cannot be charmed, exhausted, frightened, grappled, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, not prone, or restrained, because they're not corporeal, and they're cool like that. They have dark vision up to 60 feet and a passive perception of 15. The languages it knows is one, whatever it knew in life. So whatever, you, when you're developing a backstory for one of these things, the reason you're using it is you need to know why they uncovered this secret, how they did it, and who they were. They are a Sierra 5 with 1,800 XP. Uh, as I mentioned, they're incorporeal, so they can move through objects and creatures as if they were difficult terrain, but it takes 1d10 force damage, or 5, if the creature ends its turn inside an object. Lastly, they have a maddening touch, these are their three actions that they have. They can touch somebody with a plus six to hit and a reach of five feet. And it's one target, and they hit for 17 or 46 plus three psychic. They do whispers of madness. Uh, they can choose up to three creatures that I can see within 60 feet. Each target must succeed on a DC 14 wisdom saving throw, or it takes 17 or 1d8 plus three psychic damage. Excuse me. That's a how math works. It takes seven... <laughs> <laughs> 1d8 plus 3 psychic damage and must use its reaction to make a melee attack against one creature of the Alep's choice that the Alep can't see. Constructs and undead are immune to this because they got no brains. Uh, lastly, they have Howling Babble, which recharges on a 6. Each, cre- each creature within 30 feet of the Alep that can hear it must make a DC 14 wisdom saving throw. On a failed save, the target takes 12, 2d8 plus 3 psychic damage, and it is stunned until the end of its next turn. On the successful save, it takes half as much damage and is stunned. Constructs and undead are immune to this effect. Jeez. I don't want to fight one of those. Sounds pretty impressive. Would you only do one or would you do multiple? I would say since it's one secret, 
this seems like something that would be not necessarily something kind of in abundance, right? Yeah. You wouldn't have a lot of these kind of roaming around. And just, just one. I would say one per secret, or unless a lot of people are researching the secret at once. Then that could be some whole weird side quest of, hey, uh, this whole organization just recently turned into a bunch of Alex and we don't know why. What secret did they uncover? <laughs> and so that's, that's an aspect of something you investigate. But I think if it's something big enough that somebody takes a lot of effort to uncover, then there's probably only going to be one. And once it's passed it on, it's gone. Um, I last time we talked about this, Jamie had a good suggestion of kind of making it like a revenant where unless it's shared its secret, it's not going anywhere. It's just there. Yeah. It'll like keep coming back. Like if you kill it, like the next dawn, it regenerates or something like that. Yeah. It keeps coming back to try to get rid of the knowledge that it has psychically and all the information that it's absorbed. It, it can't pass on without somebody else knowing it, and that's part of its curse. And the only way it can do that is to impart it by somebody else writing it down. And <laughs> I think that would be a good idea for kind of a, a... A DM's idea would be to like, okay, well, we want to share this information with you. It's very important that you get it. Somebody would have to spend a week essentially being psychologically tortured by this thing to see if they experience some form of madness by the end of it, just to get the information they need so this Alec can pass on. And the question would be then, who who would be willing to do that, and then who would read it and also be cursed with this information again? So it, it, I, I'm not really sure how that would work. Of Let's say the Alec knows a secret. They in encourage someone to write it down. That person, of course, forgets it, because that's part of what the text says. Once they've convinced somebody to write it down, they're pretty much wipe it clean from their memory when they pass away. And then somebody else reads it, then another Aleph is formed. It seems like an endless cycle. Oh. Ew. So, I don't know, and I'm not really sure how to approach that. Maybe yeah, because wouldn't one of your party members become Only if they actually read it. If they wrote it, it's not a big deal. But if they read it, that's an issue. Once you know it, you can't unknow it. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Words of wisdom. I mean. <laughs> that's, no, it's great. I think it's there awesome. There are known knowns, and then there are known unknowns, and then there are unknown unknowns. Things we don't know that we don't know. <laughs> what is that from? From Pulp Fiction. Oh, Okay. Let me guess, um, Zach. You've never seen this movie, so you don't. <laughs> I played the fifth. I can't the say a whole lot. Of, I've actually, fiction. I've not seen Pulp Fiction either. What the fuck? Oh my god! I'm working my with list. amateurs. It's on my list. I actually did talk about watching it here recently. So this could be. Uh, well, we'll make the announcement at the end. Go ahead, Jamie. Take it away with your sweet ass monster. <laughs> <laughs> Monster is called. I quit. <laughs> My monster what? is called. I, I I don't like you guys anymore. <laughs> we love you, Jamie. You make me so self conscious. Um, a dragloth is a half drow, half the brazu demon. 
had to look at it close because I didn't know what it said. Um, born of a drow and a high priestess in an unholy, dangerous ritual. It has innate magic and physical might. It usually remains in the service of its mother's house, lending its thirst for destruction to that house's plans to triumph over its rivals. What does that mean, its mother's house? So it's from the unholy union of a priestess and a demon. So I'm imagining whatever faction or group the priestess belongs to, it stays in, like... Does it come as a baby and just grow up to be crazy? Or is it just... No. Come out fully formed? We've had this question often of how things fuck in D&D. So... That's a great question. I didn't think demons had penises, but obviously I was wrong. But but I think when they say mothers, it's also a it's a matriarchal society in the drow. Men are not in power in the drow society. Well, it also says mother because if the mother is a priestess, then I mean you would stay there. You wouldn't go back to hell with the demon or something. They don't seem like stable parents. Um, A dragoth looks. Kind of like a werewolf. Like if a if a werewolf had like big arms, like big doggish arms and claws, and then it had little dainty arms and hands right beneath it. <laughs> it has uh, four arms, and the top set are big and muscular, and the bottom set are like normal human arms. To Strong arms. Yeah, it has it has strong hands and then it got little delicate hands for doing delicate drow things. Um a Dragloth is an ogre sized remember that four armed humanoid with purple black skin and yellow white hair. Two of its arms are huge and muscular, tipped with sharp claws. The other two are the size and shape of drow arms, uh capable of delicate movements. Although the creature is heavily muscled, it's graceful and quiet like a drow. Its face is clearly demonic with bestial features, glowing red eyes, and elongated dog-like snout, and a mouthful of sharp teeth. So it's not one of any beauty pageants. It looks gross. Um, The ritual to create a a dragloth succeeds only rarely. So... I mean, when you want to sleep with a demon, I don't know. Uh, but when it does succeed, it is a great event that is seen by the drow of the house um, that they're trying this in as a sign of the goddess Lulf's uh, disregard for family rivals, which were not thus gifted with the Dragoth. Uh The birth prompts the leaders of the house to begin crafting new plans to strike at its rivals when the Dragoth is fully grown. So, yeah, it does come as a baby. It's a weird dog-like baby. <laughs> mm, so, like um, a normal human child. No, well, I'd imagine it'd be a weirdly beefy, muscular baby. <laughs> More like a puppy. Um, uh, these plants always use the Drake Gloth in a significant role because its abilities can turn the tide in a battle against a house that doesn't have a Drake Gloth of its own. Although it plays an important part in the welfare of a house, a Drake Gloth can't rise above the status of a favored slave or a consort to a priestess. Which, so, <laughs> when we last played 
our campaign within, she had us find a book. Was it called like Fifty Shades of Drow? Is that what yeah. it was called? Fifty Shades of Drow. <laughs> and I swear it's the story of a priestess and her Dragloth. And that's amazing. I I bet it's not. I bet it's gross. Because <laughs> this thing doesn't have a wiener. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I guess he uses the dainty hands in that So one. many hands. So many hands. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. Nope. <laughs> oh my uh, before gosh. Drake Lawson is given any duties, it receives, <laughs> it receives instructions and in accepting the role set forth for it and not challenging authority. Dragos instinctively resists this sort of treatment, but most of them take their frustration on their house's enemies. A Dragoth that can't suppress its ambitions might abandon its house and strike out on its own. Whether these rebellious Dragoths are a part of Lost's plan for sowing even greater chaos is unclear. Uh, Dragoth loves the feeling of tearing opponents apart with its claws and teeth and of wielding the magic that courses through its veins. Most are too impatient to bother with complicated tactics, but a few go on to become uh, more knowledgeable in destructive magic. So mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't imagine finding one of these that was a capable caster as well. Oh, that would be terrifying. It would be terrifying. It's the size of an ogre. It's large. And he could grapple you and just cast. He has, yeah, he has four arms. Yeah, he could hold you with two of them and then cast a spell on you with two of them. Holy shnikes. Okay. Oh, I was reading the top banner on the page, and it's a note from Volo saying, These drow house pets are graceful and nimble as Waterhaven stage dancers. Only their slayers and enforcers, forearm brutes built like an ogre. Life isn't fair. Mm. <laughs> uh, no uh, I'm not sure how to feel about that. Well, we can't trust Volo. It says so in the book. But anywho, here's its stat block. It is a large fiend. It is a demon. It's chaotic evil. It has an armor class of 15. It has 123 up to 182 hit points and a speed of 30 feet. It is eh, pretty heavily stacked in strength with a 20 and a plus 5. Uh, Dex of 15 with a plus 2, con of 18 and a plus 4. Intelligence is a 13 plus 1. Wisdom and charisma are at an 11 with a plus 0. It has a plus 3 to perception and a plus 5 to stealth. Its damage resistances are cold, fire, and lightning. Uh, Damage immunities, it cannot be poisoned. Uh, That's the condition immunity too. Oh no. It has dark vision up to 120 feet and a passive perception of 13. It's a challenge rating of 7. It does have fae ancestry, so they have advantages on saving throws against being charmed, and magic cannot put them to sleep. Yeah, because drows are elves, right? For sure. They're the dark elves. Yes, they are. Scary, scary underground elves. Um, The one thing this does not have that drow has is sunlight sensitivity. Hmm. So... That's one thing I noticed it's not on here that Drow have, but that's it's definitely a plus. Um, it has innate spell casting. The Dra- Dragoloth's innate spell casting ability is its charisma, which is at 11, so don't get too happy. Um, spell save DC is 11. The Dragoloth can innately cast the following spells requiring no material components. 
once each day. They can do confusion, confusion, dancing lights, and fairy fire. They do have a multi-attack that includes a bite and claw attack. The bite attack is a plus eight to hit and reach of five feet to one creature. On a hit, it does 16 up to 25 piercing damage. Uh, it also has a claw attack with a plus eight to hit, a reach of 10 feet on one target. And the same, it does a 16 up to 25 slashing damage. And that is a dragon war. <laughs> so it's not like... Oh, go ahead. Oh, it would be cool to... I was thinking of ways to parry all these monsters. And then, like, the secret is somebody created one of these, and maybe they were trying to keep it secret. I don't know. Yeah. Mm. I'm thinking... Well, unless someone had a secret that involved Drow, or or a secret about the Dragloth, I don't know. Or... Maybe... Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I always do that. I try to combine those two things to see if it'll work into something. Sometimes I do. I don't think these do. I think you would have... I don't think you could directly put them together, but I do see them being in the same story. They could even be in the same dungeon. Like, the same place. Yeah. I could see that. Maybe the um, Alps, like, underground, because that's what it was doing its research, or where it ended up trying to whisper creepy secrets to um, to the... Uh, to the drow who are researching or doing something else. Or maybe that's the secret it knows. Maybe it knows how to make a Dragloth and it died when it learned it. It could have been an adventurer. That's one thing I like thinking about the about yours. I forgot what they're called again. Alep, right. It's an Alep. I forgot. Um, but it'd be cool if an Alep was an adventurer. An adventurer who, as a lot of adventurers do, picked up the wrong book randomly opened a scroll, you know, it didn't, it doesn't have to be someone who's searching for knowledge. It can be someone who all you have to do is learn it. Like it it could be written, I don't know, in gum underneath a bar table. <laughs> but once you read it, you turn into an alip. So I don't know. It could have been a drow secret that this Dragloth was protecting and, Adventurer got through, and now the adventurer is trying to warn other adventurers, but can't because it's an Alep, and they kill it, and it comes back, and I don't know. Yeah, that could do it, where it's just straight-up murder. Murder hobo! Knowledge is not power in this in this instance. <laughs> no, no, this thing would kill you in a heartbeat. So, what... What magic item do you have for us, Garito? Hey, I get to do my first magic item. Okay. Ayo. So my, oh, uh, my magic item comes from Instagram from the D&D Coalition, uh, and it's called the Helmet of Knee. It's a wondrous item, very rare, requires attunement. This helmet is used by only the most fearsome knights. While the reason they are feared may have been forgotten, fearsome they remain. Are you in a pinch and need a sh- and need a shrubbery now? This is the helmet for you. Yee! So uh, the helmet, the helmet while attuned to this helmet, you may speak this helmet's command phrase knee as an action and spending one charge. Doing so causes each creature within 30 feet radius to make a DC 17 wisdom saving throw. 
A creature which fails this saving throw becomes frightened for one minute. The creature may repeat this saving throw at the end of each turn. This helmet has five charges and regains 1d4 charges each morning. If at any time this helmet is reduced to zero charges, roll a d20. On a one, this helmet becomes non-magical and loses all magical abilities. I think this is awesome. Also, fear is awesome. Fear is a very powerful spell if used correctly. Exactly. So I think this could, like, as simple as it seems, I think it could actually be very useful. Also, I want to run around yelling me. When in doubt, always run around yelling me. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I. <laughs> also, the helmets they wore were badass. Yeah, that's very true. I'm trying. So, who made this? The D and D Coalition on Instagram. Uh, I think I just found a picture. Nope, that's a helmet, a bicycle helmet with it. Um, is it is it worth one? Is it worth one of your attunements? Well, it doesn't show. I'm trying to find the actual description of the item. It just says you have to have it. Okay, here we go. Let's see. As an action, expending one charge. Friend for one minute. Mm, I I would say so, yes. To what level, you think? Like, how long is it useful? Uh, I would say it'd be pretty... um, Pretty useful, um, just if you're using it on, I mean, the DC 17, that's a great use right there, right? Yeah. Uh, that's pretty high for a spell, especially, like, you could get 17 maybe at level, like, 10 or so. So I'd say it's definitely useful for that. And it's a free casting of fear. Fear's <laughs> third level. So that'd be about fifth level that you would learn that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's not bad. Not bad at all. Feels pretty fair. And then you have a higher DC for it. Yeah, at at fifth level, definitely. I would keep that around for quite a while then. Five expenditures, you said? Five times? Yes. Oh, heck yeah. I would do it just for fun. (laughs) I feel like. uh, I feel like if anything, you could kind of use it as like a. if somebody starts laughing at you because you're wearing such a ridiculous helmet, that's <laughs> when you turn around and be like, hey! And then, like, force them to make the save. I'm sorry. My, I broke my chair today by being fat and sitting in it. And so, uh, I'm having a great time. <laughs> having a good time. Yeah, so if I lean into it, I'm afraid it's going to snap and try to kill me. And so, yeah, I'm trying not to lean too hard on anything. Boy, having a great day. I'm a lucky So, uh, yeah, we got more stuff to talk about now, don't we? we only one the, thing more. The tip? Maybe? Just- <laughs> so, we've got... Um, some fun tips for you today and any day you listen to this, right? So um, I was thinking since we kind of discussed a little bit of madness with the Alip, we can go back to our discussion of what madness is in D&D and uh, how long it lasts, how to get rid of it, uh, how to deal with it. Um, I will admit after reading some of these before when we did this the first time, 
Madness sounds a lot like psychological disorder, so forewarning on that. Uh, also, forewarning while I look for my... That is what madness is. It's psychological disorder. Well, I mean, it's common psychological disorders today. I sometimes forget, like, okay, how often do you guys actually look at the DMG? Well, when running a game. Never. (laughs) I've heard that. I've never actually looked looked at it before. I've heard a lot of people say that if you want to start being a DM, it's easier or it's cheaper and an alternative is just to buy the player's handbook. Because as long as you know that, you know everything you need to know to run a session. And because, I mean, you really don't, don't get me wrong, there's very useful information in here. But it's very specific more to magic items and developing your own stuff. But if you're running something pre-written, you really just need um, the um, player's handbook. That drives me mad. And you know what else drives me mad? (laughs) Page 258 to 260 of the DMG will go over madness, uh, going mad, madness effects, right? Getting rid of madness. I can't transition. It's it's difficult. (laughs) Uh, So... um, a typical campaign, characters are driven mad by the horrors they face and the carnage they inflict day after day. Uh, but sometimes the stress of being an adventurer can be too much to bear. If your campaign has a strong horror theme, you might want to use madness as a way of reintroduce, uh, to reinforce that theme, emphasizing extraordinary, horrific nature of the threats the adventurers face. Um, I think Curse of Strahd uses madness to a degree. It's been a while, and we never finished it, as we've stated before. That madness is a very big thing in Curse of Strahd. Um, going mad, um, there's a few things that can cause this. Certain spells, such as contact, other plane, and symbol, can cause insanity. And you have, uh, and you can use the madness rules here instead of the spell effects in the player's handbook. Diseases, poisons, and planar effects, such as psychic wind or the howling winds of pandemonium, can all inflict madness. Some artifacts can also break the psyche of a character who uses or becomes attuned to them. Resisting a madness-inducing effect usually requires a wisdom or charisma saving throw. If your game includes the sanity score, uh, a character makes a sanity saving throw instead. I think sanity is a very big thing in terms of, like, Call of Cthulhu. That's where you go real crazy in that game. Uh, it might be something interesting, if you're, especially if you're using horror in your own game. There are short-term, long-term, and indefinite madnesses. Short-term lasts 1d10 minutes. Long-term lasts 1d10 times 10 hours. And then indefinite madness will last until it's removed or cured. Uh, the list of all of these madnesses can be found on page 259 as well as 260. Uh, they have uh, 10 or more for every single type of madness. Uh, for fun, we'll go over the indefinite madnesses. Uh, these are when you finally hit the last leg of torturing your players and you really want to snap them uh zero to one zero one to 15 or one to 15 being drunk keeps me sane uh 16 to 25 is i keep whatever i find 26 to 30 i try to become more like someone else i know adopting his or her lifestyle of dress mannerisms and names 31 to 30 becoming a bard yeah a creepy person putting on clothes like crazy um I must bend the truth, exaggerate, or outright lie to be interesting to other people. That's 31 to 35. 
36 to 45, achieving my goal is the only thing of interest to me, and I will ignore everything else to pursue it. 46 to 50, I find it hard to care about anything that doesn't revolve around me. 51 to 50, uh, I don't like the way people judge me all the time. 56 to 70, I am the smartest, wisest, strongest, fastest, and most beautiful person I know. 71 to 80, I am convinced that the powerful enemies are hunting me and their agents are everywhere I go. I am sure they're watching me at all times. 81 to 85, there's only one person I can trust and only I can see the special friend. 86 to 95, I can't take anything seriously. The more serious the situation, the funnier I think it is. And 96 to 0, I have discovered I really like killing people. So these aren't necessarily madnesses. They're considered flaws that stick with your character. And in order to get these removed from your character sheet or your character's background or any NPC even too, calm emotion spell can suppress the effects of madness while a lesser restoration spell can rid a character of a short-term or long-term madness. Depending on the source of your madness, dispel curse or, or sorry, Remove curse or dispel evil might also prove effective. A greater restoration spell or more powerful magic is required to rid a character of indefinite madness. You have so, to have a good role-playing table for these. Yeah. Exactly. This is a madness is something that you have to do that's very, very strong in terms of role play, and I think a party has to be on board with it. And you asked last time, like how you encourage your players to play this way. And I think it's a lot of you as the DM, either through text or passing a note or whatever, or you can even say it at the table as long as your players aren't metagaming, is to just say, hey, you have um, you have a tendency to steal things. You steal things from crime scenes. You steal things from your own friends. You steal things from the tavern you own. What are you taking today? And then you can give them a list of what's in the space or tell them who's in there. So you kind of have to drive that madness into the character. But it only works if the players are willing to participate with it. It's kind of, it's similar to any curse. Like if I were to curse somebody with, um, lycanthropy, I have to tell that player what's going on or it will be a slow reveal. But it's easier, I think, with madness to kind of explain to the character, hey, you in particular are driven to do this versus lycanthropy. You're like, hey, full moon's out, motherfucker. Let's have some fun. <laughs> sure. So you have to be careful with it at the table, but also encourage the role play. And the thing you could do is like, if they have a tendency to steal things, they're probably going to try to do it pretty stealthily. And then you have to kind of encourage the party without forcing it to address the situation if possible. And we, we have this kind of conversation with the, um, rings, the seven deadly sin rings, that they just kind of get worse over time, is what we would have changed them to do. And I think that's something that would be kind of interesting as an aspect of this, of like, yeah, you're a little crazy, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse as you don't address it. And then would you have your other team, like, they don't, they won't know that someone's gone mad. They would have to, like, roll perception checks and stuff, wouldn't they? I mean, if it, if the role-playing is good enough, you'll probably notice a behavioral change without actually having to to roll for it. Like, if the party has a passive perception high enough and the thief, or the person who's a kleptomaniac isn't the thief with a high sleight of hand, you can be like, oh yeah, they're just taking random knickknacks from every house we've been to. That's weird. <laughs> and so, if that's the case, then, 
um, they might say, like, yeah, you just see them shoving stuff in their pockets. And that's where you give the opportunity for the party to interact with that. If you say, yeah, Timmy over there, I don't know why I use Timmy every time, uh, has just been shoveling stray coins, any buttons, anything they found on the ground. And the question is whether or not what they do is harmful for the others. Maybe they start out when it begins, like, oh, they steal shit. Like, not actual shit. That'd be weird. It might be a thing. Hey, copper face is a thing. Um, but it might be that they're just taking random small things. And then as the madness gets worse and worse, as you continue playing that character, they're stealing stuff off of people who are just walking around. They're getting really good at it. Use a DM. I say, yeah, you've really gotten good at pickpocketing. Let's talk about that. Let's add it to your skill set as you've gotten better and better at doing this. Maybe they just start stealing weird shit. Like you're talking to a nobleman. There's a nice little jade rabbit sitting on the table. Happy Easter to me. And they just shove it in their pocket because they can't stop themselves. I imagine also I like if, someone, if someone goes through a experience that caused madness, you would know it. Like, I feel like it it's, does, doesn't just happen randomly. Like you have to experience or see something horrible to get madness or it's a curse, you know, but even yeah. that traumatic experience. Exactly. <laughs> there, there's certain things you can do that would cause them to definitely snap. And the question is, did the whole party go through it together or did it happen um, um, prior to the party getting together or did it happen on off time? Like if you have some downtime, that the party goes into get gets into some weird shenanigans and see something like when I forced you guys to watch a um hag eat a baby like beef jerky like that might have caused a little a few problems it it did it definitely <laughs> did and the the say yes I want to yes, say anis hag no that wasn't the anis hag that was the Bure hag um that we used for that she, yep. that's actually a effect that she has if she's feeding. It can cause, I want to say it's either like frightened condition or stunned. Oh, no, it's it's madness. It's it, madness. It sends yeah. it in there. Like it's, it wants you to make a save. Yeah. So I think try to see if, if somebody has that real, real tragic backstory and they insist on playing it. Not that I'm against a tragic backstory. And sometimes your NPCs or your players might have dead parents or whatever. And they're like, well, they were murdered tragically in front of me. Okay, how does that affect the psyche of a nine-year-old kid? It's not going to be great. They might have a bit of madness. And it might not affect them all the time. And you can just kind of work that in, especially if you're doing the horror genre. Oh, yeah. When we did Call of Cthulhu with uh, Deanne, using madness and that was highly effective. And if you're, it's one of those things like we always say, if you're going to use it, you have to be consistent. Every time you have to do it, or it won't, it's not worth it. Oh, yeah, definitely. You have to stick around with it and play through it. <clears throat> All right, well. I have a text, sorry. Uh, uh, so I think it's something you can easily implement in your game. But it is very, like, if you have a party of just hack and slashers, madness is not for you. Unless you want to drive them to madness of just trying to kill their own party. 
I think a cool way of using madness against murder hobos would be that eventually it starts to ruin their perception of people and their like their investigations, not their investigations, their insight checks may be off their um, things like that. So they just automatically assume everyone is a threat or everyone is against them or, you know, once you become a murder hobo, you're you're automatically a psychopath. You're blurring the lines of good and evil and right and wrong. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I agree with that. I think if you're if you're having a hard time, like okay, let's say yes, this person is a pathological liar. That's one of the things you've done. But now they have a really hard time determining whether people are telling them the truth. So maybe their madness gives them advantage on deception checks because they're just so good at lying at this point. However, they can't read people's faces or body language anymore. So you'd give them disadvantage on insight. So they might be able to lie through their teeth without having any issues with it. But then once they try to figure out if someone's lying to them, they can't. That seems fair. Yeah, it's, it, it, there's there's a way to tweak the system in your favor and also imply some really good storytelling. I'm not saying that should be step one in this process. Oh, it, no. I think it should be a kind of risk and reward system of I've been stealing a lot of stuff. That's great. You've now earned the right to have sleight of hand added to your proficiencies. That's cool. However, you're now a well-known thief in the community and you have posters of your face hanging everywhere that's drawing attention to you. How do you deal with that? Do you even care? Do you just take stuff willy-nilly? It's something you have to build up on with madness. Right. And it all comes down to whether or not the players want to play that game. Okay, sure. Yeah. So thanks for listening and to our rambling as we try to wrap up this episode to... um, uh, Sweet Tea and D&D re-recording attempt number two. Doing fucking great. Um, <laughs> we are going to release this episode as soon as possible and at the same time uh, we're planning on releasing some bonus quarantine content. Quarantine? No, that's... Yes. That sounds stupid. Absolutely. That, that's what it is. No. That is TM, 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 TM. It is now quarantine. It's amazing um, and it's staying like that. <laughs> I hate myself. Uh, So with that, what we're going to do is we're going to try to watch movies that I have not seen before, which if you listen to us regularly, you know I haven't seen a lot of movies. I I like to imagine I have a life, but I don't. Um, So (laughs) I think our first choice is going to be Mortal Kombat. We're going to watch it and record us kind of discussing the episode or movie. It's a movie, isn't it? It's not a TV show. It's a a movie, yeah. (laughs) Can I button mash through it like I do the game? No. No. Fuck. Uh, So we're going to watch the movie and comment on it, and we'll attempt to relate it back to D&D, but I haven't seen it, so I don't know what insight I can provide other than like, oh, he's... I mean, it's another game. It's a... a so many character creation stuff. Yeah. It's, oh, this, was, this was a movie made by a first-time DM. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, is it is it like cheesy? What, yes. Where it it's cheesy. Okay. It's, yes. it's just one of those things. That, okay, so they made a video game, and they had a great song, and that was their only... <laughs> 
point of reference. <laughs> they had a wrong. video game and a great song. You know the Mortal Kombat song? <laughs> Mortal Kombat! You know that song? You've heard no. the Mortal Kombat song, right? No. No! I know oh, the I Ultimate Showdown, is that related to that? No, it's not. No. Just Google Mortal Kombat song. I'm... the What? You're fired. They've used it for like 30 years. <laughs> And then you play Mortal Kombat. But that doesn't mean you wouldn't have heard it. Jeez. Maybe I just don't listen to it. That also sounded like you were starting. Is it the theme song? Is that what I'm looking at? It's similar to that, actually. It's literally Mortal Kombat song. It's called Mortal Kombat. It's about Mortal Kombat. The first two words are Mortal Kombat. Yes, it is. I can't wait to watch this movie with you guys. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Holy shit! It is definitely like sounds very similar to uh, that one song I almost sang, and now I can't remember what the fuck it is. It doesn't matter. We don't want to pay the rights to it. <laughs> we aren't. We are definitely not paying the rights to it. We don't have that kind of money. Uh, um, yeah, so for that, we're going to do it. Okay, let me ask this. Well, first, let's wrap up the episode, and then I'll ask these you guys some questions. So with that, thanks for listening to Sweet Tea and D&D. You can find all of our shenanigans on the Internet at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as all one word, sweettea.com. No, Sweet Tea and D&D. You can find us on our website at sweetteaanddnd.simplecast.com. And if you're looking for us on your podcatcher of choice, you can find us at Sweet Tea and D&D, all separate words. But it looks like you found us if you made it this far. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Say bye. 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 <laughs> oh, my God.